Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. I know it's a couple episodes in quick succession, but uh, I had a little bit of time to iron out that second uh, iteration of um, our conversation about the antagonist in the Bible's story. So we're going to talk today about the fall of Satan. And um, this is a quick stop on our big trajectory about the Bible and how we read it and taking a look at it and that kind of a thing. But um, I think it's worth mentioning and talking about, especially because it gets us into the next phase of this conversation, which is uh, some of our assumptions and some of the holes that our traditions fill in about the Bible that aren't necessarily there. And I I think I want to take a look at some of that next as we go. So, like I said, we're stopping quickly with the antagonist of the Bible, and we're taking a look at some of the things that we tend to think about related to that character in the Bible. And the last time we were together, we acknowledged that some of our understandings about him, his origin, his story, have been informed by things that may not necessarily be in the Bible explicitly. Perhaps there in our traditions... Um, They're perhaps there, although maybe not in ways we thought they were. Um, And so we just want to pay attention to it. What is it that the Bible tells us about this character? Um, First, the name Lucifer and our tradition around that. Uh, Isaiah 14 mentions the day star and son of the dawn, uh, but the name Lucifer is not in the Hebrew text or the Greek translations of those Hebrew texts in the Isaiah 14 passage that we just mentioned. Um, It's not Greek or Hebrew at all. Instead, Lucifer comes to us through Latin. It means son of the dawn, um, which is accurate, I think, to the Hebrew phrase that's there, day, star, son of the dawn in Isaiah 14. And that often gets sort of, I don't know if it's loosely rendered, but it gets sort of loosely translated into the morning star or something like that. Son of the dawn, the morning star. Um, The Isaiah 14 text often gets paired up, linked up with Ezekiel 28, which describes this lament we mentioned last time um, that the prophet Ezekiel has inspired by the Holy Spirit over the king of Tyre. And that link-up of Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 has catalyzed some of our Christian traditions and understandings of the fall of Satan, quote-unquote. And that backstory to the character that we see in the texts. So the story of Satan's fall typically looks something like this. In heaven, there is a beautiful angel that God has created who rebels against God with one-third of the angels in heaven trying to usurp God's place as sovereign. Now, for his rebellion, he's cast from heaven to the earth where he makes his way into the Garden of Eden. In the garden, he tempts Adam and Eve, Eve specifically, I guess, and deceives humanity. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then all sin and disaster break loose on the human race, and we have original sin and all of this other. Um, in the garden is where he tempts Adam and Eve, but that is a second step. He's already rebelled in heaven. And from the moment of that temptation in the garden on, he's been attempting to bring down as many human beings with him as he can. 
So he now, sort of being cast out of heaven, knows he's headed to destruction and <clears throat> is simply looking to take as many people down with him as he can. That's, I think, part of this narrative that we're talking through. Um, however, and we mentioned this last week, Ezekiel 28 is about the king of Tyre, and Isaiah 14 is about a lament over Babylon. If those texts don't combine to reference the fall of Satan, then what we're left with is that the Bible's story about this character may look quite a bit different than we assume in our traditions. There might be some things that still linger, and we'd have to go look at specific texts in depth, but I've already said that's not part of the purpose here. The major purpose here is, are we thinking about what's handed to us in our traditions by evaluating what's in the biblical texts? And that's sort of what we're doing here. So, first, we need to address the name that we know for sure for this character. It's very clear that by the time we get to the New Testament, the devil's name sort of established as Satan. Jesus uses it in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, when he tells us that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Which should also tell us that by the time we get to Jesus' incarnation, Satan has been cast out of heaven. So whatever he did to get him cast out of heaven, he did it before Jesus Christ, God the Son, became incarnate in the womb of Mary because Jesus saw it happen. And once he's incarnate with Mary, he's not returning to heaven until his ascension at the end of the Gospels. But in the middle of Luke, he tells us that he's already seen Satan been cast out of heaven. So it's taken place, it would seem, before the incarnation. By the time we get to the first century AD, the name Satan has become an established name. It's definitely there, it's fixed in the traditions that bring us the New Testament. In the First Testament texts, however, Satan could be a name or it could be a title. We mentioned this a little bit last week. Job chapter 1 tells us that the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and the Satan came among them as well. And I'm rendering that verse that way on purpose. This is Job chapter 1 verse 6 and that's a bit of my translation or rendering here. I've rendered it this way as the Satan instead of the name Satan in, in my English work here because it is ha-satan transliterated from the Hebrew. It's, it's ha-satan in Hebrew. So when we look at Hebrew, ha is the word for the, Satan means the accuser. So what we have in Job 1.6 is the accuser. And in Job, that's precisely what this particular character does. He accuses. He challenges the idea that Job is going to maintain his integrity and righteousness, thereby accusing Job of being a fair-weather fan because of the Lord's blessing on his life. That if God were to remove that blessing, Job would stop being a person of integrity. And so, the character in Job could either be Satan, as we know by name, or could be the accuser. It's clear, though, in 1 Chronicles 21, Satan is a name used to describe the devil's temptation of David to take a census that he should not take. Clearly, 
this is a temptation. When we look at the narrative, this is clearly a temptation to do what God has forbidden David to do. And we link this idea with our understanding of Satan, and that's fine. However, in Job, the ha-satan who is there is in God's presence, seemingly part of the divine counsel. If Satan has been removed from heaven for his rebellion before the Garden of Eden, then what's he doing here with the counsel of God, the court of God, in Job chapter 1? And it's going to happen again in chapter 2. So this leads many to believe that the character in Job is the accuser, and it's a role or title in God's court who helps with the testing of human beings and our integrity. It's not necessarily Satan by name that Jesus is making reference to, the devil in the Gospels and, and going on from there. So we've, we've got some options here with that uh, particular setup as we get into the first text, uh, the first chapter of the book of Job. Chronicles seems to clearly be a name. So what are we to say then? Well, we can say this. Satan, as a name, is the antagonist. He's God's adversary in the story. And we can say that he has been cast out of heaven and he will be punished in the lake of fire. That's Revelation chapter 20. God is going to set the world right and that will include a punishment for this character. Whether or not that Satan by name is the same as Ha-Satan from Job chapter 1, that's a valid question and that's an interpretive one that people have to make when they go to the text of Job. What we can say is that Satan has deceived and tempted Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, that she's given to her husband and that humanity has been plunged into sin and chaos and death. I think there's room here to discuss some of our understandings, stripped of traditions and based only on what's clear in the Bible. I think it's clear in Genesis 3 that the serpent is clearly violating God's desire and attempting to get humanity to do what it should not. And so we equate that, especially because of the connection in Revelation chapter 12 and in the Gospel of John with him being a liar and a deceiver, we connect that serpent with the devil, with Satan. So, this is either the fruit of a rebellion against God that ended with him being cast out of heaven, or this is the actual rebellion against God by attacking God through his human partners. And that's the other layer that I want to talk about. I think, in other words, Satan may have rebelled against God by and when he tempts Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. If he rebelled against God in the events of Genesis 3 and not beforehand, then God's curse on the serpent to crawl on his belly, to eat the dust of the ground, to be at odds with the woman and her offspring, eventually being crushed by her offspring's heel, could be understood as him being cast out of heaven. And there are plenty of individuals who have taken it this way. The Bible Project, among other scholars, takes the view that Eden is the place where God intended to live with humanity and as such was a place where heaven and earth overlapped. That in Eden, you were in heaven, on the earth. And so if the snake, the serpent rebels against God in the garden, then his punishment is to be cast out of heaven, out of the garden, to where there is dust. 
on the earth. If his rebellion was in heaven before the events of Genesis chapter 3, then the temptation of the Garden of Eden is a continuation of his opposition to God. I think you can go either way. But here's what I would like to say as we close this out. And this is a thought from Martin Luther, the reformer. The devil is God's devil. By that, I think Luther means two critically important ideas. First, God is sovereign, and whatever he allows the devil to do is still under the control and at the discretion of God Almighty. Like Joseph and his brothers, what is intended for evil, God may intend for good. And so whatever it is that he's going to allow the serpent or the devil, Satan, to do, it's never outside of God's control. Second, the devil is primarily God's adversary. God and the devil are not equals. And scripture promises us that God has won the war, that Satan will be punished. We're instructed, James chapter 4, to resist the devil, submit ourselves to God who saves us. For us in Christ Jesus, my encouragement to us is this. Let us walk aware of our adversary, aware of the adversary of our God, but focused on God, submitted to God, and working for the kingdom of God to be brought on the earth as it is in heaven. Have a good day. We'll talk next time.